Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of God. Thank you. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, my name is Matt Ortiz, if you don't know me. And, um, and uh, if we haven't met, please introduce yourself to me after, after the service. I would love to, I would love to meet you. Um, you know, I was talking this morning with Tom about how tired I was. and He was telling me how tired he was. You know, I was... I was preaching last night in El Cajon at a sister church, and, and uh, then we had an early morning meeting, and then I preached the first service, and I'm here now, and as tired as we are, we are not as tired as Josh and Kelly Cass, because Friday night, they were up all night, and 5 a.m., this baby girl's born, yay. <laughs> I'm glad we got the proportions right for this service. Because in the, in, the, in the last service, the, the, the picture was stretched out like that. And I'm like, I know babies' heads get a little warped <laughs> during birth, but I think something's wrong with the picture. Um, and you noticed uh, that uh, Josh Cass looks different. Um, that was Reggie, and uh, uh, Josh has developed a friendship with him. And uh, we're blessed that you can... Uh, bless us this morning. So thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. I, I love it that, that we're connected with churches uh, that can encourage each other and help each other out uh, because we're stronger together. And I remember when I first got involved in ministry, churches were ridiculously competitive. It was stupid. And so I'm so glad that, that uh, we can collaborate in, in ministry. So, um, oh, by the way, baby Cass, nine pounds, five ounces. That is definitely a Josh Cass kid, <laughs> for sure. So, anyway, I'm excited for him. I'm proud of him. This morning, we are, are, are looking at Psalm 46. And um, I picked Psalm 46 because it's one of the songs we sing and one of my favorite songs um, that we do sing. And then I got into it, and I was intimidated by it, and it was too late for me to change. So I had to just roll with it. So we'll see what happens. As we look at Psalm 46, we're going to focus primarily on verses 10 and 11. And if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you've probably heard verse 10 that says, Be strong 
and know that I am God. I think most of us heard it out of context. And we thought this verse was simply about, you know, God comforting us. Well, God is a comfort, but there is so much more power to this verse. If you're familiar with this verse, you've probably heard it is kind of an infomercial kind of a way. Like, are you tired and stressed out? Are your kids and chores around the house wearing you out? Well, then what you need is Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that he is God. And for a limited time, we'll throw in Philippians 4.13. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's not why this verse is in the Bible. Psalm 46.10 is in the Bible to unsettle us. It's not in the Bible to make our lives more manageable. It's in the Bible to completely and radically change our perspective, to change our perspective on our own life, on the universe, on God. So let's jump into it. We want to feel the full force of verse 10 and 11, so we need to see how the previous verses ramp up to it. The first three verses give us our first point. God is our refuge against the uncertainty of this world. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. Now, the psalmist gives us a picture of a mountain here. What in the world is more unmovable than a mountain? No one snowboarding on Mammoth Mountain right now is thinking, man, I hope this mountain doesn't suddenly fall into the Pacific Ocean. No one's thinking about that. And the psalmist, using hyperbolic poetry, the psalmist is taking the most fixed thing that we can think of, right? And he's throwing it into the center of a catastrophic storm of inconceivable, destructive force and saying, that is what this broken world is like. Now, if you haven't felt that yet, if you have not yet experienced your life just flipped upside down, because what you thought was a sure thing was suddenly gone due to some catastrophe. If you have not experienced that yet, I'm telling you, you will. It's just a matter of time. And you need to be ready for it. It's going to happen. That's the world that we live in. We know that in this life, in this world, your life could be snuffed out in the blink of an eye. But you also know that there are worse things than dying, right? For example, living a long life as a sex slave, and I'm not just talking about Thailand or India 
Part of the brokenness of the human condition is being captive to our own broken sexuality, captive to the porn inside of our minds. Whatever the brokenness is that you feel enslaved to, living forever with that brokenness without any hope apart from the gloriously unsettling gospel is hell. Thank God that's not where this psalm ends. He goes on in verse 4 to 7 to show us that the suffering that seems to have no end, the suffering that seems to be just a foregone conclusion at this point, what has so far been painfully proven to be true over and over again with no end in sight, what we can know from the psalmist is that brokenness of this world is not final. Brokenness is not the last word. In verse 4, the psalmist says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The psalmist is contrasting this river whose streams make glad the city of God with the catastrophic storm of inconceivable destruction, destructive force. There is a city of God that is descending, that Jesus is bringing in and advancing, that is characterized by gladness. When was the last time you watched the news and said, do you know what word really characterizes our world today? Gladness. No way, right? But the psalmist looks at the city of God and says that it's characterized by gladness, that the city of God is advancing. How can he say that in light of all the brokenness? He can say it because it's a sure thing. God made a promise and he always keeps his promises. God is renewing everything. The psalmist can say that because the city of God is kept by God and advanced by God himself. How stable is the city of God? It's as stable as God himself, the same God whose voice created the mountains. Now, things start to get intense in this psalm. The verses kind of keep ramping up. The psalmist makes a a prophetic proclamation and gives us a glimpse of God's holy city being established. And he says, the Lord of hosts is with us, meaning the Lord of armies is with us. The Lord of armies is going to shatter our weapons of war. The Lord of armies is coming to destroy destruction forever. He says, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. (laughs) Do you know what that means? It means terrorists will cease striving and be still before the Lord. 
it means North Korea will cease striving and be still before the Lord. It means America will cease striving and be still before the Lord. It means all nations will cease striving and be still before the Lord. The Lord will wage war against war. God himself will end them all. And there is no peace without God's judgment. There's no security without his justice. The psalm has now built up to a crescendo in verse 10. And did you notice that verse 10 is in quotes? It's in quotes because it's as if God himself breaks in to speak over the the voice of the psalmist because the Lord here has declared a takeover. And he says to all of the earth, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is not a negotiation. This is a takeover. This is a powerful, prophetic proclamation. It is a prophetic glimpse of Revelation 19 when Jesus rips open the heavens to descend with justice. And with poetic imagery, the prophet describes uh, the, the, the Lord as having a sharp sword that proceeds from his mouth, meaning his word has power. When he speaks, he can destroy destruction and renew all of creation. All of the particles in the universe hear the voice of the one who spoke everything into existence and they obey because he is the king of glory. This is the inevitable future. It is terrorizing. It is unsettling. And it should be. We are never going to be settled in who God is for us until we are unsettled by the glory of God. We need this. We will never value the love of God like we should until we see the glory of God as we should. You know, when we hear about this inevitable future of this world, for some of us, it's distressing. Our heart doesn't sing when we hear that. Well, by the, by the time we're done here, you'll see that the psalm speaks into that. And others of this, we might be thinking, you know what? Yes, Lord, I am so ready. Rip open the heavens already. Destroy all of the destruction. Bring it now. And I understand that. But after you pray that, then we're still left with the brokenness of this world. We still have to get up tomorrow. We still have to face the brokenness of the world. We still have to visit the graves of loved ones. This psalm speaks to us too. So let's look closer at verse 10 and 11. We're going to see a couple of the things. And first is this. 
It is simply, behold the glory of God. The glory of God in verse 10 should shock us. The glory of God demands our attention. If, if we will ever have any hope at all for this broken world, we must behold the glory of God if we are ever going to rest ashore in the fortress of God. Now remember, verse 10 is not, shh, there, there. It's okay, sweetie pie. You can be still and know that he is God. That's not what this verse is about. God, with authority, is in power, is dressing the forces of destruction who want to destroy God's people and creation. The Lord declares to all oppressors of righteousness, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, if you are living a comfortable little life, then this probably bothers you. But if you've been living under relentless oppression, this is good news for those who suffer in a broken world. It points to the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will most certainly do. Sounds like some big thinking there. But let me put some flesh on it for you. There's a remarkable set of two stories about God incarnate, God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, that are those same two set of two stories is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same stories back to back in all three of those gospels. The first story is of Jesus calming the storm or stilling the storm. Jesus is in Capernaum, he's healing, he's teaching, he's feeding, a huge crowd, crowd gathers around him, and Jesus says, it's time for me to go, so he and his disciples get in a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. On their way, Jesus takes a nap. He's worn out. He got up early to pray, he healed sometimes late into the night, he is giving himself away for us. And now he's lying in the bottom of the small boat and he's sleeping when this violent storm hits. These other guys are fishermen, right? I mean, storms aren't that big of a deal. They've seen that. They've been there, done that. Peter's been fishing his whole life. But the Bible says that the waves in this storm got so big um, that, that the boat was being swamped. The boat was being filled with water. That's not a good thing. It was so scary, uh, these experienced fishermen say to themselves, we're all going to die. And Jesus is still asleep. They wake up Jesus up and they say, save us. And Jesus stands up and he says, be still. The wind stops and the wave the waves cease and the boat settles down. And the disciples are stunned. 
Matthew says they marveled. Mark says they were afraid. Luke said they were in fear and amazement. They say, who is this that even the, the wind and the seas obey him? They were trembling in awe, which is exactly the appropriate response to God's glory. Fear and awe. That's what the glory of God does to us if we behold it. It leaves us gloriously unsettled. And it's easy to think that the whole lesson of that story is you, you don't have to be afraid when Jesus is in the boat. And that's true in one sense. But it's when Jesus got in the boat that things got scary. The point of the story is that Jesus has the power and Jesus has the authority to rebuke the wind and to rebuke the sea and still the storm. That's the point of the story. And it gets reinforced by the story that follows in the same three Gospels. So it's easy sailing now. So they make it to the other side. What do we got going on here? Should I use this guy over here? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Yeah, that's better. Thank you. So, they get to the other side. They, they step on the shore in a country called, uh, uh, a country of the Gadarenes. And as soon as they step on the shore, they meet two demon-possessed men. And these two guys, they were so fierce, no one would want to pass that way. They would tear them apart. They are fierce and they are strong. And they come out to Jesus, and the first thing they say to Jesus is, have you come to torment us before the time? <laughs> See, they knew. They knew at any moment Jesus could say, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. They knew that he could melt the earth with his voice and everyone would fall on their face and worship. They knew who it was that stepped onto their shore. And what does Jesus do? He delivers these two men from demonic oppression by casting the demons into a herd of pigs that run off the cliff. And there's a reason that story follows the, st follows the stilling of the sea. It's because all three authors here are signaling something to us. They are showing us this is the one. This is the Son of God who has the power and the authority to put an end to all oppression, to all storms, to all wars, to all destruction. And the people of the town see what Jesus just did to their pigs, and they ask the King of Glory to leave why? Because Jesus just disturbed their life. Jesus just unsettled their life. Because the glory of God is unsettling. And they were afraid he'd unsettled their lives too much. That 
is what the glory of God does. It will disturb your life. It either, it either moves you to trembling and awe and you, you press into it or, or it moves you to fear and dread and you keep Jesus, who he is, as, and, and as far away as you possibly can for as long as you possibly can to have the most comfortable life you can possibly have with as little disruption as you possibly can and you will die without any hope whatsoever because you sent the king of glory away. And, and by the way, church people do this all the time. We do it all the time. We don't want a Jesus who disturbs us, right? If your Jesus doesn't disturb you, if your life is trending towards living as if you were your own king, and Jesus is nothing more than some cheerleader, then you don't know Jesus at all. But if your Jesus unsettles your life, if he loosens your grip on greed, if he, if he doesn't let you be your own king, if he gives you reason to reflect on how little control you have over the things that you love and cherish the most, if you see that God is sovereign, if you behold the glory of God in Christ, then the Bible says to you, you are blessed by God. And he's going to see you through. And you're going to make it. He is unsettling, but he is secure. That's why we need verse 10 here to do its job. We need verse 10 to flip our world upside down. We gravitate towards convenience and comfort so easily. And when people call us on it, we get defensive. We need to be gloriously dethroned from the center of our reality. Why? Because only a sovereign God is big enough to redeem the brokenness in your life and the brokenness in this world, and you need to see it. If God were only able to say, you know what? I'm going to do my best to see if I can at least salvage some of what I can in the wreckage of this world. If that's all God could do and say, then he is not God at all. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible brings desolation to the earth to renew all things, to display his glory for our good. It's unsettling because it should be. You hear me? It's unsettling because it should be. And the most immediate implication of be still and know that I am God is be still and know that you're not. That can sting, but that's how you know it's working. It's how you know you're receiving the healing that you need. And that's when you see the second thing here, that Jesus is your fortress. 
That brings us to the high point of the psalm. Verse 11, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This verse is repeated. It's in verse 1 in a different format. It's in verse 7. Then it's here again in verse 11. This right here is the chorus of the psalm. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is not far off somewhere sending you postcards saying, Wish you were here. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is with you. He is for you. The Lord of hosts is with us. So the question is, who is us? We want to make sure we want to be a part of that us right there, right? Is us everybody who happens to be reading this psalm? No, us as a particular people. Obviously, God is not a fortress to everyone because obviously, he's a fortress to all who are in the fortress. That makes sense, right? Now, why does the psalmist say the God of Jacob is our fortress? The story of Jacob is one of the outstanding stories in the Bible and the Old Testament. And when the psalmist uses the God of Jacob, he is signaling something to us. He wants us to think about who Jacob was. And do you remember Jacob, the cheater? But then God gave him a new name. Uh, Jacob wrestled with God, and his new name means he who wrestles, one who wrestles with God. You read the story of Jacob, you see he's a pretty messed up guy. He sold out his brother, stole his brother's inheritance, and lied to his dad to do it. One time, he was afraid of being slaughtered while he was traveling on on the road, and he sends his family and servants in front of him, and he shields himself with his family. This is the God of Jacob? Why? Because Jacob came to know that he had nothing and was nothing apart from God. He came to know that the man who has nothing but God has everything if he has God. Jacob sees his need for God, and so he doesn't want to let go of God because God has become everything to him. And he knows that God is not just a fortress against his his enemies, but he is a fortress from our own destructive hearts. The only difference between the man who the wrath of God falls on with finality and those of us who will rejoice at his appearing is what God has done for him by grace. Jesus is the fortress of God. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the war of God against sin, even unto death. To protect us from the storm of God's wrath that we deserved. So that we could live. There's a reason the Apostle Paul uses the phrase in Christ 165 times in his letters. Because if we are not in Christ, our fortress, then there is no hope for us whatsoever. 
Jesus is our fortress so that God could destroy destruction without destroying us. If Jesus is our fortress, we can be as jacked up as Jacob or worse and be saved. The worst person you can imagine can walk inside of a fortress and be saved. That's the whole point of a fortress. You walk inside, you let the fortress do its job. Anyone can be in Christ if they trust Christ to be their fortress. That's it. In closing, the psalmist wants us to know that the same ferocious, unsettling God whose voice melts the mountains is the same God who came down to speak with us tenderly and melt our hearts. It is only when you behold the glory of God that you will be able to rest secure in the goodness of God. We need to be gloriously unsettled by the glory of God so that when we hear him say in John 13, 34, I have loved you, our hearts will melt and we will have rest. Why? Because the love of God like that changes everything. It's what we've been looking for. And what could be greater than that? I mean, if you knew that you were loved by a God like that, I mean, whose voice melts the mountains, who at any moment could say, be still, and the whole earth would be still before him. If you knew that you were loved by a God like that, what wouldn't it change? I mean, what couldn't you face? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is our refuge. He is our fortress. Enter in just as you are. He will save you. He will change you. He will fight for you. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?